Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, is where we'll start today, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. After what Harold said about our live stream broadcasting in so many places, I told uh, Marsha we'd better start behaving ourselves a little better. So, uh, so all of you straighten up. I'm not necessarily sure I will, but you can, you can try it. I'm on a, a link with a Facebook, a Facebook page, I don't know what you call it, but with uh, classmates, my graduating class of high school. And uh, they don't put much on there very often. If somebody dies, they let us know. That's pretty much it. But they also, once in a while, they'll post something. And most of the things they post is very nostalgic. And I'm not against uh, nostalgic things. I, I kind of that way myself to some degree. But, but I also find uh, a bit of sadness in some of the things they post. They, recently, this came out. I'm sure they didn't invent this. They got it somewhere else, but I was talking about my generation, and these are folks that are uh, graduated with. They said, we are a generation that will never come back, a generation that walked to school and then walked back. Of course, we walked uphill both ways. A generation that spent all their free time in the streets with their friends, a generation that collected sports cards, a generation that found, collected, and washed, and returned empty Coke bottles to the local grocery store for five cents each, and then bought a Mountain Dew and a candy bar with the money. A generation that played board games and cards on rainy days. A generation whose TV went off at midnight after playing the national anthem. How many of you remember that? Yes. All right, a lot of you, okay. That's a different day, right? Okay. A generation is passing and unfortunately will never return no matter how hard we try. I loved growing up when I did. It was the best of times. Now, I understand that, and, and uh, there's a bit of a, a nostalgia that's nice, but also I see interlaced in this a sadness uh, it seems like these folks, as they're getting older and looking back on life, they're sad. Uh, it's not the good old days like it used to be. Uh, life is not what it used to be. Life has not turned out as they expected it to turn out, and they're sad, and they're disappointed. Uh, I think for such people, I would turn them to the book of Ecclesiastes, the inspired words of, that Solomon writes through the inspiration of the Spirit. Because Solomon tells us, as we look at life, looking back on life as, as he's doing, that uh, there are really two options that we have, two big options. Uh, we can see life is meaningless. It has no purpose. It has, there, there's nothing to it. We're going we're to live. We're going to uh, uh, do whatever we do. We're going to accumulate. We're going to die. And we're going to be buried. And that's it. Life is meaningless. It has no purpose. And you have no purpose. The other option is there is a divine being, a God, who, who gives life some purpose. We have a, an anchor with him, a tie-in with him in some ways. And that's the second option. Now, throughout history and throughout uh, the, the world today, most people choose the second option because the first option is, quite frankly, almost unlivable. If you believe that your life does not matter, that you have no purpose, and the world has no purpose, it doesn't matter if you live or die, and when you do die, you're gone. If you, if you believe that, it's very hard to get up for the, in the morning and have any reason to do so. And so most people don't live like that. Most people believe there is a supreme being, there is a God, there is something there, that uh, ties us into the reality of life and gives us purpose. However, most people do not turn to the true God, the creator God, the God of the universe, the savior God. Most people turn to other things, but not to the true and living God. It's Solomon's argument that it is the perplexities of life. It is the f deep feelings of dissatisfaction. It is the longing for something more than you have experienced. It is the belief that there is something more in life somewhere, somehow, 
that causes us to pursue God and seek for God and seek for answers. Now the question comes up at this point is why don't more people turn to the true God? The true and the living God as Solomon did at the end as he identifies at the end of the book. And the answer he gives in the section we're looking at today is the reason we don't pursue God, the true God, is because we've filled our life up with so many other substitutes for God that they have distracted us from seeking the true Lord and Savior of the universe. The substitutes have become our gods. He's going to mention three substitutes in our passage, and none of these are sinful in themselves. They're all can be good things in and of themselves. But when they become our God, when they become that which we live for, they simply distract us from the living God. And so he identifies uh, those four. So these are very common substitutes. We all know them. We all understand them. We all live them out. And so what are they? Number one is the, the pursuit of ambition and success. Uh, we find that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. But before we go there, I want to take us back to chapter 12. So go back to chapter 12 for just a moment and look at verse 11 with me. In most of the books I read that are serious books, uh, the authors are, are developing an argument and they tell you what their goal is, their thesis statement of the book, the purpose for the book. They tell that early in the book, usually in the introduction. So here is what they're going to do, here's what they're after, and the rest of the book develops their argument. So I read books like that every day, and you do too, many of you. Solomon doesn't do that. Solomon does the opposite. Instead of telling us up front what he's up to, he waits to the very last chapter of the book to tell us the purpose of the book. And he actually does two things. We're going to look at one today and one later on. But here's the thing he does in verse 11. He says, the words of wise men are like goads. The masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. Now he waits to the last chapter to tell us what he's up to. And here's what he's up to. He says, the words of wisdom, the words of the wise shepherd, are like goads. Now goads were these long pointed sticks that the people used to prod oxen to keep them going in, uh, forward and in the right direction. They poked them. They prodded them with these sticks. That's a goad. And he says these words of wisdom, a lot of the book that, we're, that we've looked at so far and will continue to look at are goads. They're, they're things that prod us forward. That they don't, that these, there's mysteries in life. There's puzzles in life. There, there are things that we don't have answers to. We, we would like to have our life all wrapped up in a little, little box with wrapping paper and a bow like Christmas, you know, and you unwrap it and there it is. But most of life is not like that. Most of life is complicated and perplexing, and there's not clear answers to many things that we seek after. These are not accidents. God puts these things into our world, into our lives, to press us forward, to goad us. To what? Well, he wants us to think. He wants to excite our imagination. He wants to provoke our emotions. He wants us to ponder. As I said before, Ecclesiastes is a thinking person's book. It doesn't have simple answers. You have to think. And he wants to make us ponder. But this pondering is, is for a purpose. And so he mentions here that the words of the wise men are like goads. They press us on. And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails that are given by one shepherd. He is goading us on to, to the well-driven nails. That is, he's not just goading us to, uh, 
to, and pushes us on to poke the bear. He's not just wanting to frustrate us and drive us to despair. He is pointing us in the direction of timeless truths that can be nailed down and, and, and depended upon. The goads pushes on to the timeless truths that are found in the book of Ecclesiastes as well as the word of God. This is where he's headed. And so in all these, these passages we're looking at, he will, he will give us the goads. He will give us the, the things that cause us to scratch our head and we identify with and struggle with. But then he moves us forward to the well-driven nails and the truths that he wants us to ponder. Now having said that, let's go back to chapter 4 and look at this first one, which is about success and ambition. Verse 13, it says, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he's come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. And there's no end to all the people and to all who are before them. And even the ones who come later will not be happy with him. For this to his vanity and striving after win. The big picture is this. You have an old king who at one point rose to power and success, but now the people got tired of him. And they get rid of him. And a new guy, a young guy, he comes up from, from poorness, from poverty. And he, he raises to the top and he becomes king. And then eventually the people get tired of him too. And they dismiss him. And so overall the picture here is the picture of, of the driving of success and the fleetingness of success and ambition. Now we have two words here in our passage, especially in verse 13, that kind of tells us why they're, they're failures at least in the eyes of God, and perhaps in the eyes of people. The first word is the word wise, or wisdom. Whenever we find the word wisdom in this book, or in the other wisdom literatures of the Old Testament, it is a word that describes that a, a person who's wise in the eyes of God. Remember Solomon himself wrote in Proverbs 9.10, he said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, all true wisdom as God determines it, is found in the fear of God, understanding who God really is. We'll look at that in a moment. And the other word is the word foolish. Who's foolish as far as God is concerned? Well, not, he's not talking about IQ. He's talking about a spiritual dimension. David would say in, in Psalm 14:1, he says, The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. That's the fool as far as God is concerned. So these, these men who had risen to power, especially the young one who was wise at first, apparently at one point had a handle on who God was and therefore had a handle on what life was about. He had a fear of the Lord and that gave him wisdom to live as he ought to live. But then somewhere along the line he seems to have lost that and became foolish like the other one did. Someone has said this, success is first a God and then a demon. I like that. Success is first a God. Those that chase after success and ambition and so forth, if that becomes their God, it's not, it's not wrong to be, want to be successful, but when that becomes their God, when that's what they're chasing after, then that becomes their God, and eventually that God turns on them. That, that idol, that God becomes a demon and enslaves them and devours them. God never intended for us to live for success alone. Here was, here was a young man in particular. He, he grew up, he was wise, he became foolish, he lost it all. He didn't have a place for God in his life. There, there did not exist room for God because he was full 
of himself. As Solomon might be seeing himself in this, a man who started out wise, but lived most of his life like a fool for these very same reasons. Ambition is a trap. Ambition for ambition's sake, for my own good, because I'm full of me and I want to succeed is a trap. A trap that many, many people fall into. But nevertheless a trap because it was never meant to be that which would be our God. And it is for so many people. By contrast, let me talk to you about a man named Jim Elliott. Many of you know him as the most celebrated missionary of the 20th century. Uh, and yet he, only, he died at age 29. Uh, Jim Elliott was one of the five missionaries that was, put to, was murdered by the Aka Indians back in 1956. And he was 29 years old at the time when he died. He and four of his missionary friends had, had flown to a place where they were going to give the gospel to the, uh, the, these, these, the Aka tribe. And they were suspicious and murdered them all. And so here were these young men with families, wives, and so forth, laying on beaches, bleeding to death because they were trying to give the gospel to someone. But, but Jim Elliott wasn't famous just because he, was, he died, although that's where love is, why we know him today a lot, but also because of who he was. Jim was an exceptional guy. Uh, he was a brilliant guy. He was a dedicated guy. And yet he struggled with, as I think many gifted people do, with ambition, personal ambition. He wrote in his diary, his, his journal, that by the way has been published in more than one book, he wrote on August 21st of his 21st year of life. He said, I sense tonight that my desires to be great are likely to frustrate God's intent for good to be done through me. Oh Lord, let me pray again with earnest, honest heart. I will not be great. Only God grant me thy goodness. He recognized the desire to be great, to be a success, to be known. And as he looked into his own heart and his own life, he cried out to God, God, don't let that God lead me. May you lead me. May you do good in my life for your sake and not for mine. He, he's also known for that famous quote that he gives us. It is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's how he lived his life. As he died on the beach that day at age 29, 1956, Five young men were killed, and the world stood up and said, what a tragedy, trying to reach people that didn't even care about God, and they're all dead, what they left behind. But you know what they left behind? The, the, greatest, modern, the greatest movement in missions since the, since the apostles, the 1950s. The young, young people of that day looked at these men and said, what dedication. If these men are willing to give their life to, pro to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they're willing to do that, then I will dedicate my life in the same way. And thousands upon thousands of young men and women went to the mission field as a result of the example of a man like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the other guys. So the Lord did use him in a way he hadn't expected. It wasn't for his glory, it was for God's glory. What a difference between selfish ambition and wanting to do that which is good for the Lord himself. Now there's a second substitute here, and that's religion of all things. Verses 1 to 7, chapter 5. One of the great substitutes is religion, not just pagan religions, and not just mythologies, but also those that follow in some form of a Christian religion or Jewish religion. The people in Solomon's day were all religious. 
They all went through the rigmarole, but most of them didn't follow God very well. It's kind of like Texans, you know. As one of our folks moved to Texas, and he told me later on, everybody in Texas is a Christian. Well, of course, everybody in Texas is not a Christian. But the bad thing is an awful lot of them that are not Christians think they are Christians because they are religious. Religion is a great trap. Religion is a great substitute for God if it's hollow. It's a substitute for the real thing. It's a substitute for authentic relationships with God. Now Solomon lays out for us three pieces of evidence that, that people do these things. Matter of fact, these are more warnings than evidences. He is warning us about hollow religion and how easy it is for us to go through the motions, be religious, but not be right before God. Let's start with the first one, uh, the religion with the... Uh, uh, that has a, simply an empty formality. Verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near. Now notice the words, how often he talks about speaking here. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're, they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. He is saying here that there are some people mouthing all the right words, but they aren't living the life. How easy that is to, for us, isn't it? As we sing these wonderful songs on Sunday mornings together or, or at other times, how easy it is for us to just mouth the words, to, to, to have our minds go blank, to not even think about what we're singing or hearing from others. How easy it is for us to repeat cliches that we've grown up with and heard all of our lives that no longer have any meaning to us. Matter of fact, go back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 17 for just one second. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. Look at the New Testament. Revelation 3.17. Here we have the church of the Laodiceans. And one of the saddest verses, I think, in all the New Testament is found in verse 17. As he talks of this church, this first century church, he says this, Because you say, and notice that, they say, I am rich and have become wealthy and need nothing. Now he's talking about spirituality here, spiritual life. They think they're rich, they think they're wealthy, they need nothing. And you do not know, and that's the sad words. You do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here are people who think they have it all together, spiritually speaking, and they don't even know their spiritual condition. That is a tragedy. And that's exactly, as we go back to Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is talking about here. Here are people who mouth the words, they know the hymns, they know the creeds, they know they memorize some scripture, but they don't know the living God. At least they're not living authentically with him. How could they have known? How should we know? Well, you know, when, when the things of God no longer move us, that ought to be a hint. When we're singing God's praises and it's old hat to us, uh, when we're hearing his word and it's cold potatoes, <laughs> uh, when, we, when, when being with God's people is simply a drag, who cares? When the Bible is a boring book, they should have known because of their prayer life, too. That kind of seems to be the context here. Uh, he's talking about praying. And he's not condemning long prayers. He's condemning hollow prayers. Prayers that mean nothing. 
Prayer, they're just, we're, just, we're just saying the right words. We know how to do that. But we're not praying truly from our hearts. Empty prayers going through the motions. Here's a second piece of evidence and a warning. They're playing games with God. When we play games with God, look at verse 4. And notice the word vow here. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should vow than you shouldn't uh, vow and not pay. I'm sorry. Better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and, and destroy the works of your hands? They were making promises to God they didn't keep. I saw a movie years ago of a man who, who was distraught in life and decided to end it all. And so he, he swam out on, in the ocean. And he, his plan was to swim as far as he could out into the ocean. So he finally came to a place where he was exhausted and he knew he couldn't swim back and he would die. That was his plan. But as he was swimming out deep into the ocean, he began at that point to realize he didn't want to die. And so he turns around and he looks back and he could hardly see the shore and he knows he doesn't have the strength to get back. And so he begins to swim and he begins to call out to God. And he's a godless man. But it begins to call out to God, Oh God, give me the strength to get back. Oh Lord, if you, if you let me get back, I'll give you 50% of everything I, I make. Nobody gives 50%, God. He said, I'll give you 50%. And Lord, I'll keep your Ten Commandments. I, I, thou shalt not kill. And well, Lord, I'll learn the Ten Commandments. He didn't know what they were. Oh Lord, give me, the, and on and on he went. And then, but as he got about 100 yards from shore, and realized he was going to make it, he began to renege. He said, Lord, I'll give you 10%. I know I said 50%, but who gives 50%? 10% is a good start. And Lord, I'm going to keep most of those commandments. There's a couple of them I really don't think I can keep, but the rest I'll try. The time he got to the shore, he forgot it all. Now that's, that's extreme, obviously, but how many times we promise God in a moment of despair, Lord, if you will rescue me from this, if you'll save the life of my loved one, if you'll, if you'll just get me through this difficult, hard time in life, then I will get up every morning at 6 o'clock and read my Bible and pray. And that lasts about a week. The Lord said, don't give me, give me empty platitudes. Don't give vows you're not going to keep. Those are, those are games that you play with God. Here's a third warning and piece of evidence. They had lost the wonder of God. Verse 7, for in many dreams and in many words, there's emptiness. Rather fear God. Paraphrasing A.W. Tozer, what is, what is it that comes into your mind when you think about God? Whatever that is, is the most important thing in your life. Is he, is he a kind but clueless deity? Is he passive? Is he apathetic? Is he he's one of the good old boys? Or is he the almighty power of the universe? If so, fear him. Is he the omnipotent judge of all mankind? Then stand in awe of him. Is he the full majesty and uh, full of majesty and truth? And listen and obey his words. In hollow dreams, he says, in words, they simply shape our lives in wrong directions. They make us hollow ourselves. But we have another option, and that is to pursue God. So he says here, fear God. We're going to look at that more in the future. But here, here's the bottom line. If, if we believe that our view of God will determine our life, and it does, then, then what is your view of God? 
Well, if God is the great and awesome God of the universe, our life will have purpose. If our God is a bully, then you'll just live in fear of him. If our God is wise and a loving savior, you will enjoy the life that he gives you now and you will enjoy the life he'll give you in all eternity. To these people and to us, he is saying that God, if God is simply an unfortunate, necessary item in your life, then you have missed out on the true God. You need to dedicate yourself to him, fear him, live for him. So those are two of the substitutes, ambition, success, and religion. The final one is the big one, that's riches and possessions. I think this is the number one substitute for God in America. Perhaps it's been the number one substitute for God throughout the ages. We start with verse 8 here. There's no greater substitute. Solomon could have uh, probably said these words that I, I recorded a few weeks ago. I'll quote again. He knows this. Money will buy a bed but not sleep. Books but not brains. Food but not appetite. Finery but not beauty. A house but not a home. Medicine but not health. Luxuries but not culture. Amusement but not happiness. Religion but not salvation. A passport to er everywhere but heaven. Money can only do so much. Solomon who had everything knew that. So he gives us several reasons to tell us why wealth and possessions can never satisfy your soul. And yet everybody not everybody, but most people seek that above all other things to find life. First of all, because money, uh, the desire for wealth is an open door for our sinful desires. In verse 8 he says this, If you see oppression of the poor and a denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, the king, a, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Why is it, he's saying, that people want to oppress other people? All over the world today and all over the world throughout history, the, the more powerful have pushed down and oppressed and harmed the little person who has no power. Why do people do that? Even in the best of cultures, why do they do that? And he's saying it's because of this desire for more. So, so uh, the normal, maybe a middle manager guy pushes down the, the little person because they can. Because someone above them is pushing in, on them. And someone above them is pushing on them. And they know that each is after a piece of the pie financially. And if you don't oppress somebody else, you're not going to get your slice of the pie. You're just going to get squashed. And so you have to push on other people. You have to push down other people in order to get what you want to have. If you don't do that, you'll just get squashed yourself. So he's saying, look, this is why people do some of these things that they do. They're out for what they want. And what matters is what they get, not who they harm. Here's the second reason that money never satisfies, is that there's never enough of it. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, Now he who loves abundance with his his income, this too is vanity. What a powerful verse. Uh, We've mentioned Tom Brady, the the great NFL quarterback, three times recently. I mentioned him a couple weeks ago. Brian mentioned him last week. I'm going to mention him now, all in a little different context. This is one of the most successful men in, in, in athletics ever. Very, very wealthy man. He's been willing to give up his wife and his children in order for the ambition for one more year in football. That's what I'm going to talk about today. 
We, we have found out, we don't know all the details, but he has invested apparently most of his wealth, which some estimate to be over $500 million, in the crypto world that just collapsed and he may have lost everything. And Shaq is doing that and several other celebrities have done that. Now here's my question. I, I, I feel bad for him a little bit, not much, but a little bit. But, uh, because he probably still has a few millions stuck in his sock drawer somewhere. But, but here's my question. If you have a half a billion dollars, why do you need more? Is there anything else you really need that a half a billion dollars cannot buy? I've always been amazed when somebody wins a lottery and wins, you know, $50 million, and somebody says, you need to invest that. Why? What do you need to, why do you need more? Isn't that enough? There's never enough. There's not enough for Tom Brady, not enough for Shaq, not enough for, for uh, John D. Rockefeller, the, the richest man that has ever walked the planet, uh, inflation adjusted, who was once asked, how much more do you need, John D.? He said, a little bit more, just a little bit more. Money will never satisfy. We always want just a little bit more. It makes a very bad God. Now, many of us, none of us have money like I'm talking about, but, but many of us, I have things today that we couldn't imagine having 10 or 20 years ago, right? The luxuries of the past have become necessities of the day. We have more clothes than we can wear. I just switched out my summer clothes with my winter clothes in two different closets. I got two closets, or partial is one. Marsha's got most of it, but I got two partial closets. And how could I, I even got a third one. And what am I, don't talk to me like that, Marsha. We'll, we'll put that up later on. Nevertheless, what am I doing with all this stuff? I got so much. You do too. We have more appliances and gadgets and electronics and TVs and wall decorations and furnitures and guns and antiques and toys than we can imagine. And yet we want more. What if we all decided to be satisfied and want nothing for Christmas? I'll tell you what would happen. Our economy would collapse. <laughs> That's what would happen because our world is run on greed. We always want more. You might have heard the comedian's uh, uh, skit some many years ago about stuff. I'll just read a little piece of it. He says, a house is a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You can see that, that when you're taking off on an airplane. You look down, you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. And all the little piles of stuff, and all when, when you leave your house, you lock it up so you wouldn't want somebody to come in and steal your stuff. After all, they always want the good stuff and not the junk, you know? And, and, and they only want the shiny stuff. That's what your house is, a place to keep your stuff while, you're, and while you go out and get more stuff. And then he talked about storing the stuff you can't put in the house and storage bins and so forth. And, and we know I could go off on that for a while, but I'll, I'll let that go. Stuff, wanting stuff, it, wealth, money is a cancer to the soul. And once that door is open, it's very hard to stop it when we don't have the perspective of God has on money. Here's a third reason why it doesn't satisfy is because it complicates life. It's a trap. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? The sleep of a working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Wealth complicates life. With every new thing you add, you've got to take care of it. It takes time and energy. You've got to clean it. You've got to dust it. You've got to adjust it. If you looked at all the warranties of all the appliances you bought and do what they told you to do, you would never leave the house. 
You've got to constantly tune your toaster. You've got to constantly tighten the bolts on the chairs you just bought. You've got you to go out and fix the swing set three times a week. It, it, you're never done. And the more you have, the more you have to take care of. I was in Grand Rapids this week at a board meetings up there, and so I decided to listen to an uh, audio book on, on Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, uh, the, the man who developed the biggest empire in the history of mankind. He, in Mongolia, from Mongolia of all places. After he became the Khan and took over Mongolia, he looked around and he discovered something. There was nothing there. He was in charge of everything, but there was nothing there. The animals outnumbered people 10 to 1. All they had was grazing land and, and deserts and, and a few people. And so he looked around and he saw all the nations around them had all sorts of good stuff. They had wealth, they had gold, they had silver, they had clothing, and he didn't have it. Now, what the Khan could have done is to decide, I'm going to develop a... a economy that builds good stuff but instead he says it'd be easier to steal it so he developed a massive army and it went out and it, it raided the neighborhoods and brought back wealth from that from that first conquest and and it and this book answered a question I've wondered in my mind forever why is it that conquerors like him keep conquering nation after nation after nation why do they do that and this book finally told me when he brought all this wealth back and the Mongolian people for the first time saw the luxuries that others had, they couldn't get over it. They had more now than they ever had before, and they wanted more and more and more, and the only way to get it was for Genghis Khan to, to raid and conquer another nation. And so he conquered everything from China to the Middle East to Europe, Asia, all of it. Biggest empire the world's ever seen. Amazing. All because they needed more stuff. Interesting. Solomon could speak of a business owner here, maybe something more normal. Here's a business owner. He, he, uh, his business is going well, and the only way to expand and make more money is to hire more employees and put more money into it, but there's no more profit. Or here's somebody who invests in something else, and they go in debt, and the tide turns on them, and they, they get harmed in that way. When the family income goes up, and most of our family incomes are higher than they used to be, why is it we don't have more money? Because our desires go up. And for you misers out there, who, uh, and you know who you are, who, who don't want to spend money, you just want to look at money, I often think of Silas Marner who, who kept his money in a jar at home and counted it, and he looked at his jar. Now, what good is money in a jar? What good is money in the bank? Is that really the key as, as well? And then he says in verse 12, the, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, but the full stomach of the rich man will not let him sleep. All these extra burdens that go with money gives anxiety. When I left Moody Bible Institute, everything I had, I've said this to a number of you, we put in the back of Marsha's dad's Oldsmobile. Now, honestly, those old Oldsmobiles had trunks big enough to play pickleball in. I mean, they were, they were massive. But... I took, I took everything I had, and one of those things I had was a four-drawer file cabinet that still sits back here in the back room. That was in the trunk. All my clothes, all my books, everything I had was in that trunk of that car. Not today. <laughs> Not today. I have more than I could ever imagine today, but those things didn't bring me happiness or satisfaction, nor would they you as well. Stuff becomes a trap. And I'm not saying we can't have good things. I'm not saying we shouldn't buy things. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying when those things become your ambition in life, your purpose in life, 
And those things will never satisfy. And also, fourthly, uh, the wealth and possessions are uncertain. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to their hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered his son, there was nothing to support him. There's no guarantee when it comes to these things. You can lose everything in a moment of time. In a moment of time. And then finally, wealth and things are not permanent possessions. Verse 15, here's, here's the, what he's answering here. What if you go out on top? What if you never lose that money? What if you get richer and richer, more and more successful? You, are at the, you go out at the top of your game, as some people do. What about you? Well, verse 15 is a very sobering verse. As he came from, naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation and sickness and anger. In verse 16 he says, so you go out on top, you still go out. Get it? You're still out. You're gone. And if you're in love with money, if, you're, if the love of your life is wealth, you and your love are going to be parted forever, someday. And on top of that, in verse 17, you spend a lot of your life in darkness and vexation, anger. You know why? Because those things never satisfied and you're disappointed with what you've lived for. That leads to a conclusion that we'll look at in detail next week, but I want to close with this. He's, so far, he's given us golds. He's pushed us to think. He's pushed us to dissatisfaction. He wants us to see these things do not give us satisfaction. Now he brings us a nail. He doesn't want us to despair. He's driving us to a, to a nail of truth. These things should drive us to something. What is that something? Verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat and to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. He is saying here that those ambitions and religions, hollow religions, riches, drive us to something, and that what they drive us to is this knell of truth that God intends to give those who live for Him, who are sold out to Him, who are dedicated to Him, God intends to give them the satisfactions and the gift of life here, in even the very common and simple and beautiful things that life has afforded. The very items that can become our God's can also become a gift from God for us to enjoy. And I'll unpack that more next week. And I'd like to end with a quote by Patrick Henry that I find very interesting. I don't know much about his spiritual life, but this is a great quote. Patrick Henry, at the, toward the end of his life, wrote these words. I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that and I had not given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not, did not have that, and I had given them all the world, 
they would be poor indeed. That's what Solomon is saying. Join me in prayer. Father, we confess that we are often distracted people, distracted by the very gifts you give us. Uh, and these things become so important to us, Lord, that, that you're in the shadows. We confess that. We lament that. We repent of that this morning. Father, I pray that your word speaks to the hearts of each of us today where, where it's meant to speak to us. And Lord, may it drive us. May these be goads that drive us to the true riches that are found only in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.